please turn in the Word of God to 1 Peter, chapter 3, returning to the first epistle of Peter, that's all the way near the back of your New Testament, your Bible. Remember, this letter was originally addressed to Christians that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they were misfits. They were rejects. They were exiles of a sort because these Christians were suffering to one degree or another. They were suffering for their faith in Christ. And so Peter writes to them to encourage them to stand firm in the grace of God. And he calls them not to lose hope. They are to remain steadfast. And his letter really is endeavoring to show them how to stand firm, how to stand firm in God's grace and what that grace is. He began in chapter 1 by reminding these believers of who they are in Jesus Christ, how incredible their salvation is, what their identity is in Jesus. And then he reminds us as believers of our duties to the watching world. And so we move from looking at identity to testimony, Christian testimony. We are called to display Christ to others by keeping our behavior excellent. So yes, speak of Christ, speak the truth of the gospel, but this will only glorify God to the extent that you are also showing forth Christ in your life, in your conduct. And that's why Peter has spent several verses telling us how to actually keep our behavior excellent. And he has focused uh, his attention very specifically, starting in chapter 2 with addressing us as citizens and our responsibilities to our government, even unjust governors. And then he addresses those who were slaves, most in the Roman Empire, were slaves, especially the Christian demographic. But, of course, this would apply to us today with our responsibilities to our employers, our masters, if you will. Even if they are unjust, we have responsibilities to submit to them. And then Peter addresses wives and husbands who are Christians, and he calls them to display Christ in the context of the home. But now he's going to more generally address all of us, and that is all of us who are simply Christian. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Then he's addressing you. And as Peter continues describing the sort of behavior we must display to the watching world, he aims to show us that doing so, this Christian life that Christ is calling us to live, is truly the good life. It's truly the good life even in 2024. Let's stand together for respect for the reading of God's word. Let's read our text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. There we find, Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's begin by acknowledging the author of this book. Our God and Father, we thank you again for your precious truth that you have made available to us, but we acknowledge you, we acknowledge you as the author, 
And we know that aside from a work of your Holy Spirit, uh, this word will not penetrate where it needs to go. And so we pray that you would soften us. We pray that you would humble us. We pray that you would prepare us now in a very spiritual way to receive the seed of your truth. We pray that it would take root in our hearts. It would bear fruit. I pray if there be anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus, that you would convince them of their need for the new birth. And I pray for those who have received the Lord Jesus, they have newness of life, would you draw them to an incredible desire to live that good life, to experience the goodness that is found in Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the good life? And how do we live it? Philosophy and religion are divided as to how to answer these questions, but the basic consensus that emerges from popular culture is that the good life is simply the happy life. It's any happy life. And you can live the good life by simply doing whatever it is that makes you happy. So we hear people saying things like, he or she's living the good life. And by that, of course, we understand to mean that she struck it rich and she can afford whatever she desires. And we see everyone on the commercials is always so happy, right? That's by design. It's intentional. Commercials aim to promise you the good life in return for your money. Buy this car and you'll be living the good life. Or drink this and you can dunk like Michael Jordan. Or buy this soap. Use this soap and everyone will just love you. You know, basically, the message is all the same. It's give us your money, and we will make your life good. We'll make you happy, as if it were that easy. Now, all the money and commercialism aside, if we were to ask even many Christians, including those in this room, what is the good life? What do you think of when you think of living the good life? I'm sure we'd hear a lot of answers to this effect. Lying in a hammock alone, maybe on some tropical remote island there. No boss, no clock, no chores, no work. Yeah, you know, that sounds pretty good right now. I'm not going to lie, that sounds really nice. That would be like a dream vacation for many of us. And however we actually live the good life, I think we can all agree, even non-believers could agree, that the good life involves happiness. Then it has to do with being happy. The problem is what? Often the things that we think will make us happy really don't. At least they make us happy for a time, and then they leave us dry just as before. The happiness is gone again, and the good life with it. Thankfully, the Bible has a lot to say then about living the good life, including the text before us. How can we live a life that is consistently happy, It's consistently good? Peter begins in verse 8 with the words to sum up, it's actually one word in the Greek. Uh, a better translation perhaps is the word finally, as most English translations will render it, because Peter has said much to believers in specific situations to this point. But now, finally, he addresses all of you. All of you, in any context, in any situation, all of you simply as the people of God. Peter's been calling us to practice Christ-like submissiveness. That's not easy. Some of what we've looked at in Peter has not been easy. It's certainly not popular. And uh, Peter knows that at least his original readers are suffering for their faith. That compounds the difficulty. And so no wonder 
he here reminds his readers that the life that Christ has called us to is a life of blessing. It is a pathway to blessing in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he says, who desires life? Who loves to see good days? A.K.A., who wants a happy life? I mean, sign me up, Peter. Who doesn't want a happy life in 2024? Who doesn't want to have good days in 2024? And to be loving life. If you want to live the good life, Peter wants you to know God has a word for you. And in this text, he endeavors to show us how to live the good life. This text gives us three ways in 2024 that we can live the good life. First, from verse 8, how can we live the good life in 2024? Living the good life means living for others. Now, all these three directives that we're going to see from our text are actually counterintuitive. It's not exactly what the world is going to recommend to you, but it's consistent throughout the word of God. Verse 8 begins, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. The good life that Peter describes here begins with a list. It's a list of five adjectives in the Greek. They are five moral qualities, and they're all involving living for others. The first is harmonious. Be harmonious. The Greek term here literally means same-mindedness. If you have the NIV, it has be like-minded. Or the ESV, have unity of mind. It's all the same idea. When we are born again, and we join a church like this one, you know, we just assume, hey, we all have one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We Christians, we really don't have all that many disagreements, do we? Churches like this don't have their share of disagreements, do we? But we do. We certainly do. You've heard about the church, perhaps, that was divided over the color of shingle that would color the sanctuary, over the sanctuary roof. Half of the church wanted red shingle. The other half wanted green. When the contention remained so bitter, the elders eventually decided that they would do one half of the roof red and the other green. Well, the problem was that next Sunday, when everybody showed up for worship and they met in the sanctuary, the red roof was set on the side of the sanctuary under the red shingle. And those who wanted the green roof, they sat on the opposite aisle, under their side. The problem wasn't solved. There's a disunity and brothers and sisters, it's happened before in churches like this one. Churches splitting over the style of music that will accompany the worship. Or over dress codes. Or over who's got the right view of the rapture. There are many reasons that Christians will not be like-minded. Now, by calling us to be like-minded, Peter's not saying we are exactly to think alike. We, or we are to think exactly the same on every single detail. Of course not. He's not calling us here to some kind of a group think, some kind of a, you know, just follow whatever the pastor says, think exactly after him. No, the beautiful thing about the church is that we are gifted differently. And God has given us all different experience, different perspectives. And so we bring some diversity to the table. And that means that the harmony then that God is calling us to involves something sort of like a symphony orchestra. Have you ever seen a symphony orchestra or attended a symphony 
you, you can admire. There are many different instruments, many different players performing many different parts, but somehow they all work together. And that's because they're all playing the same score. Many different players, many different parts, many different instruments and gifts and abilities, and yet everyone is working together to produce a harmony, not a cacophony. Everybody's not doing the same thing. Everybody's doing something differently, how they've been gifted, according to the design of their instruments, and the result is harmony. That's what God designs for the church. But we can only live for others then to the degree that we are harmonious as a church. We've got to be a team player. We can only be harmonious as we apply the other four qualities Peter describes here. If we're to live for others, the next moral quality to add here is sympathy. Peter says, be sympathetic. While the first adjective has to do with unity of mind, this one has to do with unity of feeling. One commentator explains, the secret of sympathizing surely lies in relating so closely to others that we feel what happens to them as something that is happening to us. And that means willingness to surrender our independence. That's well said. Sympathy is Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. Why did Jesus weep? Why did Jesus weep? He was not responsible for the suffering that was here present. Jesus knew, in addition, that he would momentarily raise Lazarus from the dead. Why did Jesus weep? Jesus wept because he loved. Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus' family. And Jesus so sympathized. Sympathy is an act of love. It's saying to another, because I care about you, I am endeavoring to feel this with you. And again, Peter's not expecting all of us to feel exactly the same way about everything. That's impossible. In fact, we all understand some of us are very emotional, and some of us are pretty much emotionless. God knows that our personalities are different. But regardless of your personality, God is calling you to practice sympathy. That's not an option. That is necessary if you're to live the good life and living for others. You might not be able to give the gift of tears to someone who is suffering, but you can give them some time and attention, right? You can make an effort. You can do your best to consider what it is they're going through because that's part of living for others. If we're to live for others, the next moral quality we're to add is brotherly love. Here in the NASB translated, be brotherly. Be brotherly. The Greek word is philadelphos. Uh, if you remember back to chapter 2, when we studied verses 11 and 12, we discussed the Greek word philadelphia. It's that word for brotherly love. These are related terms, of course. They're uh, cognates of each other. And this kind of love is the sort of love that we see exemplified in David and Jonathan. Remember David and Jonathan? They were just great friends. And uh, they loved each other. And that love had nothing to do with sexual attraction. This was a brotherly or sisterly sort of love. It's the kind of love that amounts to sincere affection. It's the kind of love that means you truly enjoy being with that, that person that you love. You love their company. I have two uh, blood brothers. And, you know, whenever we get together, which is now seldom uh, because they live in different states and all, but whenever we get together, it's just inevitable. We always have a blast. And we couldn't do otherwise. 
we love each other's company. And it's this kind of a brotherly or sisterly dynamic, this kind of a love that Peter's after, where we are to genuinely enjoy one another's company. Of course, Peter's already told us in chapter 2 that we are a family. We are called out from the world. We are a chosen people to God. We have a common identity in Christ. We share the same name, Christian. And this should describe, then, our experience as a church family amongst one another. You could spend your time in church thinking simply now about what it is you're going to do when you leave. Or the people that you're going to hang out with, your friends outside of church, that you're going to hang out with when you leave here. Or you could spend your time doing what Peter's saying here. Being brotherly. Being sisterly. Toward those here in your church family. And this demands giving of yourself for the sake of others. It demands giving time. Seeking to be a blessing. Not just receive a blessing. That's part of living for others. And by the way, that's why last Sunday evening was such a, a blessing. And no, no shame, certainly. Um, don't feel bad if you weren't there or were unable to join us. But many of us spent the final hours of 2023 together as a church family. And let me tell you, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Because that's what we're to do. We're to fellowship with one another more. Not less, but more as the day of our Lord as the return of Christ approaches. To live for others, we must have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. But fourthly, Peter adds to the list, kind-heartedness. Be kind-hearted. The only other place this word is found in the New Testament is in Ephesians 4.34, where Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, that's our word here, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Of course, Jesus always has to be the penultimate example. And he is the example, the ultimate example of kind-heartedness. We'll see that more in a moment. But this word for being kind or tender-hearted has to do with compassion. It's the idea of a deep gut feeling of compassion. Just think of the Good Samaritan Jesus talked about. He had compassion upon his Jewish neighbor, that man that was left for dead. And the thing you need to... No, to appreciate that story is that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And even this Jewish man, left for dead, his own Jewish neighbors didn't have compassion upon him. Jesus was making that point. Here comes along Samaritan. He has nothing in common with this man, but he has compassion. And how do we know it? Because his compassion brought him to action. You know, it's one thing to tell somebody, I feel for you. I have sympathy for you. I hurt for you. It's one thing even to offer a prayer for somebody, but it's another thing to let your prayer bring you to action, to serve that person, to serve others. Does your compassion for others drive you to action, or does it stop with simply sympathetic thoughts? Is that it? Does it stop at prayer? To live for others, we need a heart like Jesus, full of compassion. Be kind-hearted, Peter says. Finally, as a fifth moral quality, Peter adds... Humility. Be humble in spirit. Humility is not a low view of self. We've seen Peter already addressing the church in chapter 2, and he's told us that in Christ we can glory. I mean, we have an incredible salvation. Actually, chapter 1, chapter 2, we have a new identity in Jesus. That's worth getting excited about. That's our glory. It's well been said then that humility is not thinking less of self, it's thinking of yourself less. 
You get the difference? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Because our problem is that we all tend to think too much of ourselves. That is, we think of ourselves far too long, far too often, and as long as we're thinking of ourselves, guess what? We're not thinking of others. You go to work, and you're only concerned about how people are treating you and talking to you and how you're feeling and how your day is going. Guess what? That means you are oblivious to what's going on around you. I mean, in the souls of other people, the needs of other people. And as Americans, it just seems like we're conditioned that way, aren't we? You just get in your car, you go to work, you clock in, you do your thing, you come back, and that's it, right? And the Lord wants to break us out of that. The Lord wants us to be humble, which involves not thinking so often of simply our own needs, but thinking of the needs of others. Paul urged the church this way, along these lines in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, that's what Peter's after too, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Wow. Humility within us is what makes harmony between us possible. That's the real recipe. As long as we are humble and we consider others more important than ourselves, guess what? That's a great recipe for harmony, for unity. We need that. You want to live a good life in 2024? According to the word of God, you need to be living for others. You need to make these qualities a part and parcel of your life. And secondly, according to our text, if you want to live the good life, living the good life means blessing your enemies. Living the good life means living for others, and living the good life means blessing your enemies. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil. Or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Peter expands our moral duty to include even blessing our enemies. Loving those who don't love us, who don't treat us in a lovely way. And he indicates two ways that we can achieve this. The first is negatively stated. He says, if you're going to bless your enemies, you cannot give evil for evil. Stink, right? You can't give evil for evil. He's saying revenge is not an option if you're going to follow Christ. And the evil Peter mentions here might include anything evil that someone does to you. I'm sure you could think of a, a number of things. You're accumulating that list in your mind. But remember here that Peter originally wrote this letter because Christians were suffering for their faith. And so the language here suggests Peter's now talking about behavior related to non-Christian antagonists. And Peter is here writing to people in the first century Roman provinces of Asia Minor. They didn't enjoy the same kind of measure of law and order that we have at our disposal today. These people didn't have a 911 option. They didn't have that sort of security. So think about this. If someone in the first century vandalized your home because they knew you were a believer, they broke your windows, they keyed your car, or whatever, you know. Um, they uh, slaughtered some of your livestock. There was uh, many ancient rulers, many ancient lawgivers that insisted, hey, they did that to you, you return evil for evil. On the condition that your evil, your revenge, that is, would not be greater than the original provocation. 
And we know the saying, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They took your eye, you take their eye. They took your tooth, you take their tooth. That is the language the world has always spoken. And it's the same today, is it not? That seems fair. Revenge is, this, is the way this world works. And the drive for revenge can be so powerful that whatever we believe about it, morally speaking, we could find ourselves swept into it, can't we? It, it just fascinates us. Revenge, it seduces us by promising us satisfaction, fulfillment. You get back in that person and you will feel right. You will feel good. That's part of the good life. That's the idea. But this year, revenge will destroy millions of lives. It will drive millions of people off the cliff. It really will. It will destroy millions, not to mention the lives of others involved in that scheme of revenge. And so listen, regardless of this world's modus operandi, regardless of the alluring promises of revenge, Peter says, revenge is not an option for a Christian. Not evil for evil. Not insult for insult. The Bible says in Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for e to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room with the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But pastor, what about my rights? What about my rights? Well, yes, remember, God is the one who gives us our rights. And the same God who gives you your rights, he gives you responsibilities. And many times your responsibility is to lay down your rights. That's not popular. That's what Jesus did. That's who we're called to follow if we bear his name. So Peter says, do not give evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Giving a blessing instead, wait. Not only can we not give evil for evil, but Peter is saying you must repay evil with good. Here's the positive side of the same response we are to take toward our enemies. If you're going to bless your enemies, you must reward their evil with good. Wow. This expands living the good life to include the unthinkable now. This is extremely counterintuitive. In 2017, Voice of the Martyrs premiered the film Tortured for Christ. The film was based on the uh, book by the same title of Richard Warmbrand, a Lutheran pastor imprisoned and tortured 14 years in a communist prison in Romania. In one scene, the communist guard discovers Wormbrand praying in his cell, which was against the rules, of course, and they would beat them for this. And so the guard asks Wormbrand, frustrated, why could you possibly be praying to God? What are you praying to God for? You're in prison. Your wife, too. And your children are basically orphans. So why are you praying to your God? The guard wants to know. Wormbrand replies, I am praying for you. I am praying for you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When our Lord hung on the cross, he said of his enemies, of those who had crucified him and beaten him and now were mocking him, he said, Father, forgive them. This is what genuine Christianity does. 
So on the one hand, Peter's saying, don't repay evil with evil, but it doesn't stop there. He says, in addition to never paying back evil to anyone, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him to drink. And Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's our weaponry. That's Christian warfare in the 21st century. It's overcoming evil with good. It's blessing our enemies. God didn't ask us if we Christians here and now in the postmodern era are supportive of this or if we find this practical enough for undertaking. God doesn't care whether you agree or not. If you like this idea, look again at verse 9. Peter says, Give a blessing instead, that is to your enemies, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Whether you like it or not, if you call yourself a Christian, you need to bless your enemies. And if you won't, don't call yourself a Christian. Our Lord has called us to this way of life, endeavoring to bless our enemies. And if we're honest, we'd have to admit, well, Lord, I can't do this. I just can't. And that's true. It's beyond our natural ability. God is not asking you to do this without him in your strength. You can't do this apart from God's special grace. You might be able to bite your lip and walk away, right? We've all done that. Give your enemy the silent treatment kind of thing. But to truly bless our enemies, that takes God's supernatural grace. Blessing your enemies means you cannot give evil for evil, but you must repay good for evil. We can just hear all the critics, all the people on the street saying, Are you kidding me? Really? And you call that the good life, Peter? You tell this to somebody, say, that's a disaster, man. You're going to destroy your life. But Peter reassures us, blessing our enemies will result in a blessing for us. That's his point. He says in verse 9, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Don't limit that blessing to simply what God has in store for you for the future. That's true. That's part of it. But that's not all of it. Remember that Peter also has in view throughout this letter the blessings of this present life that come as we live out the Christian life. I'm thinking of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He says, even right now, we can experience joy inexpressible, full of glory. We don't have to wait to just go, die, go to heaven. The Christian life is here now. Jesus says, those who believe on him have eternal life in the present. And that is the joy. This is the part of the blessing Christ wants us to experience now in this life. So let people whine, let them say whatever they want. God says, living for others, blessing your enemies, that is a pathway to his blessing, true blessing, true happiness, all that comes with it. And this brings us to the final point of our text for how to live the good life. We see living the good life means living for others. And living the good life means blessing your enemies. Boy, that's counterintuitive. But here's something else that doesn't come naturally to us, and that is living the good life means trusting God's word. In fact, you can't live the good life without it, without trusting God. Verses 8 and 9 demand this counterintuitive way of life. I mean, denying self-interest for the sake of others, leaving vengeance to God, seeking to do good to the person that I hate, that I don't like, that's doing evil to me. There's no way you can actually do this and live this way aside from one thing. Well, we could say, yes, only by God's grace. We've just said that but really also only by trusting God. You're never going to truly live for Jesus in this way, live a good life, unless you truly trust his word. 
unless you truly trust what he's said. So Peter begins verses 10 and 12 with the conjunction for. That signals here is the basis and or motivation for living for others and loving our enemies. For doing what Christ has called us to do. And what follows in these verses 10, 11, and 12 is all Old Testament scripture. It's a citation from Psalm 34. By falling back on scripture, Peter is showing you that obedience to God can only stand upon trust in God. That is because you will only, you only do what God actually says so long as you trust what God says. You need trust if you're going to obey the Lord. So Peter leaves us now with two truths that you can trust from God's word and they motivate us to live the good life. First, you can trust that God's law what he has said, what he has decreed, what he's called us to do. God's law yields a flourishing life. Notice how verse 10 is framed around the noble desire for a flourishing life, the love of the good life, the desire to see good days. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with wanting a good life. God is the author of joy. He is the river of true delights. And just as any father delights to see his children flourishing, God desires the same for you as his child. But to ensure your life is flourishing, God's given you certain laws. Oh yeah, you need to follow the manual. Otherwise, it's not going to work out for you. God has rules for how we are to even speak, notice. His word teaches we can't simply say whatever we want. That's why in verse 10, Peter, citing from Psalm 34, says, the person that wants to live the good life, he says, he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You need the Spirit of God for that, right? Shut our mouths when it's time not to say anything. We don't have anything good to say. Or we need God's power to open our mouths and help us speak when that is necessary. Do you see how God's ways are not the world's ways? Do you see that? You go to just about any psychologist and tell them that you're, you're, you're sad, you're um, depressed, you, you don't have happiness or whatever. They might push a pill or whatever or talk about your past and all this different stuff. But how many of them are going to tell you, are you watching your language? Who's going to say that? Quit blaspheming. Quit tearing others down. Quit being dishonest. I'd like to see a secular psychologist recommend that. You see, but that's what God says. You want a happy life? You want the good life? It involves how we speak. That's amazing. Notice God has negative and positive rules for how we are to live. In verse 11, Peter continues citing from Psalm 34. He says, he, that is, whoever wants to be have a happy life, he says, God says, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So some churches are excelling in how to tell people how not to live, what not to do, what not to drink or eat, or what music not to listen to, what people not to hang around with, right, or places where you shouldn't go. But the Bible's emphasis here on doing good is instructive. We aren't simply to avoid evil, but we are to be making a difference for Christ in this world. Peter even says we are to be pursuing peace. That's beautiful. Uh, when the Israelites were carried off into exile in Babylon, God didn't instruct them to begin conducting underground resistance operations. Actually, he told them the opposite. He told them through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29.7, they were to seek the welfare of the city where he sent them into exile. Do you know that city was Babylon? Wicked old Babylon. And God said that they were to pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in the welfare of this city, you will have your welfare. 
Wow. Seek the peace of where I've called you. I know this nation is corrupt. Come on now. <laughs> Don't be naive. This nation is more corrupt than any one of us could guess. But do you see it? We ought to be praying and practically pursuing peace, praying for the welfare of our nation. We ought to have a reputation in this community as people who are helpful, who are compassionate, who are looking to serve others, whatever their beliefs and lifestyles, of course. Be encouraged. God's law yields a flourishing life. But a second truth Peter reminds us up here from Psalm 34 to motivate you is that you can trust God's attention is fixated on you as you trust the Lord, as you're living the good life, right? This means God's attention is fixated on you. Verse 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Last summer in Sunday school, we did a course on hermeneutics, that is how to interpret the Bible. And we mentioned that though God is a spirit and does not have a body like us, yet for the sake of accommodating his revelation of himself, to our human understanding, he often describes himself in human terms. And so we'll see God often describing himself using what is called an anthropomorphism. That's just a fancy word for he's describing himself as having perhaps eyes or ears or feet and so on. And Peter cites three anthropomorphisms here from Psalm 34. They're all commonly used throughout the Bible. The first is the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord, he mentions the eyes of the Lord, that which represents God's perfect assessment of judgment, the fact that nothing escapes his notice. He mentions the ears of the Lord. It represents his alertness to humanity. This is the fact that God can hear us. God can hear our groaning. Jesus said, God knows your prayer even before you pray it. But of course, he delights to hear us. He delights to hear the prayers of his children. The face of the Lord, Peter also mentions... The face of the Lord in Scripture consistently represents his favor. God's face is the symbol of his blessing. To say that God's face is toward you is to say that the creator of the world is behind you. Man, that, nothing greater could be said. No greater encouragement could be given. To say that the Lord's face is against you is to say you're in serious trouble. I'm reminded God told his people in the Old Testament how they were to bless one another after the manner of Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The, Lord's, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. That is the good life. That's the life we need. The life of God's attention upon us, his favor on us. When a child's lying in bed alone in the dark, you remember those times, right? It's not been that long ago. Alone at night, alone in the dark, and your imagination begins to run wild. The child may cry for the father because that child knows the father is there. And sure enough, even though the father knows there's no emergency, there's nothing going on, the father knows what's going on. Still, he comes. Still, he shows up. And when he shows up, entering the child's room, sure enough, all the scary thoughts vanish instantaneously. You see, it's one thing for the child to know, my father is there. My father is there. It's another to know my father is here. He's near. He's beholding me. He's listening to me. He's smiling upon me. When a child receives the assurance, a child of God, 
that our God is not merely present, but that he is very near. When you or I are assured that God is attentive to us, that's what makes all the difference in the world. That's when fears are suddenly gone and all's well. And brothers and sisters, my question to you is, what could be wrong in your life if God's ears are open to you, God's eyes are on you, God's favor, his face is smiling upon you? What could be wrong in your life? That is the good life, according to the Bible. People will tell you, living the good life means your circumstances are all going the way you want. You got a cushy savings. You got plenty of sensual gratification. But all of these things don't ultimately and can't ultimately deliver what they promise. They can't give you lasting happiness. According to Peter, according to the Bible at large, the good life is not the trouble-free life. It's not what the world says. It's not what the world would lead you to believe. It turns out the good life is not a pain-free, sick-free, scare-free, shame-free, labor-free, hunger-free life. The good life is not a life free of afflictions. It's not about good circumstances, whatever that means. It's about enjoying steadfast fellowship with a good God. God, the good God, is what makes the good life good. Peter's been quoting from Psalm 34. Do you know what that psalm goes on to say? Just a couple of verses later in Psalm 34, 19. Many, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's the good life. It's a life not free of affliction, but just the opposite. Full of many afflictions. But the Lord is continually delivering. Remember, Peter's talking to Christians who are undergoing tribulation, persecution. But they can live the good life. Not because they're not going to be persecuted, but because as they are, God's favor is upon them. And they can be happy. And in this text, Peter's telling you how you can live the good life in 2024. Here we find living the good life is to simply live as a Christian with God's favor on your life. It's to live life God's way. That's the best way. That's where true and lasting happiness is found. Look, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody's got a, a solution, a suggestion, an idea for how to make that come true. But only God knows the true recipe for lasting happiness. And he's extending that to you. If you're a Christian, but your life is somehow barren or devoid of happiness, even today, this morning... That's a problem, okay? That's a problem. And I would advise you to, to let me know. I, I would invite you, if you're not loving life, if you're not seeing good days, to please let me know. And I'd love to open the Word of God and we can counsel you together and, and explore that. Because God wants you to live the good life in 2024. And we just can't let you go without saying this. You can't live this life. You can't live the good life if you don't know Jesus Christ in the first place. The good life begins with a new birth. You've got to have the new birth to have the new life. And how do you have the new birth? Well, you need to believe the good news. That's the news of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be your Lord and Savior. And so if you need to know, Pastor, how can I begin the good life? How can I live this life? How can I start? I'd love to open a Bible and show you how you can have eternal life, how you can be living the good life in 2024. Amen? All right, let's pray.